Psalm 19. We'll begin in the beginning of verse 1, and we'll go all the way to the end, verse 14. Here we go. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens. Its circuit is to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them... Your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray for the morning service. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together safely this morning. We thank you for the blessings that you've already shown us today. I pray as the the pastor comes, brings us what he studied on this week. You give him your special hand of wisdom, the strength to tell us what we need to hear today. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will take the word of God and work in our hearts to draw us to you, to show us how to change our lives, to make us better Christians, better servants, and a better church for you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Good morning. If you could take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Now, Last week, we talked about the positive effects that will happen to a believer who encounters the moral law of God. The moral law of God. That, again, referring to anything that reflects the character of God. The character of God. 
So according to the scripture, your conscience is supposed to do that. Uh, nature is supposed to do that. And God's written word is supposed to do that. There are positive effects. We talked about last week, the believer will find the law of God holy. The believer will find the law of God righteous. The believer will find the law of God good. Holy, righteous, and good. And then the last one we talked about, the believer will find the law of God is the path to mercy. Path to mercy. So it changes our life. Changes our life. Now today, we're going to deal with verse 13. Verse 13 is the center of the chapter. Some people think that it's the key verse in the whole chapter. It seems to be a change or transition between verses 1 through 12 and verses 14 through 25. So there seems to be a transition that happens. Now, a lot of people have problems with this passage, and particularly with this verse, trying to understand the change that Paul is trying to make. And the problem is interpretation. They try to figure out the interpretation of this chapter. The interesting thing about this chapter is between verses 1 through 12, all the verbs are aorist tense, point time past. So they see a past tense action. And then verses 14 through 25, we see a present tense action. Present tense. So it may be that the verses 1 through 12 deal with a non-believer's life before salvation, and then verses 14 through 25 deal with a believer's life with the present tense. So today we're in the middle part between these two different types of points that Paul is trying to make. And he brings us in to talk about sin. Sin. Pastor said that deceit has done you in. And he says that's the trick about sin. It does in the doer. That's the trick about sin. It does in the doer. That's very interesting. Kind of agree with that. Also, like this worship folder, somebody put in an ad for choir. I think we might do this, maybe not. I don't know. Um, church uh, worship folder said that there's going to be choir rehearsal this afternoon at 3.30. Choir rehearsal this afternoon, 3.30. Everyone who wishes to sin in the choir must come to practice. Okay, let me do it again. A choir rehearsal this afternoon at 3.30. Everyone who wishes to sin in the choir must come to practice. Okay, I thought that was funny. Okay. Sin is a very interesting thing. We all have to deal with sin, whether we're a non-believer or a believer, whether we're headed towards salvation or we're looking back on salvation. We have to somehow deal with sin. Sin is a very deceiving thing. And what it does 
is it causes us to think differently. We somehow change the magnitude of sin, and we say things that are quite silly, like it was only a little white lie. You ever hear that one? Oh, it's just how I, it's just, oh, the one I like. Oh, that's just Fred. That's how he is. He's always like that. And what we're doing, we're downplaying his sin. We're trying to overlook it. Sometimes we do that. We have a line that we cross. And we know the line is there. And still we cross it. Matter of fact, sometimes we try to move the line, don't we? Okay. Am I the only one? Sometimes we try to move the line so that we don't cross it. It's always one step further than I go. Come on, crowd. (laughs) Be with me. So sometimes we even move the line. We kind of think things are different with sin. That's what this verse is going to deal with. It's going to help us to understand what happens with sin. How does the law, which is holy and righteous and good, get us and cause us to sin more? Verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. First question I have for you this morning is there are three points of theology that we can learn from special revelation about the moral law of God. There are three points of theology we can learn from special revelation about the moral law of God. Now, let me clarify what I mean by special revelation. In this world, there are three ways the Bible talks about how he communicates his moral law. One way is through the conscience. You have in you a conscience that tells you when you have crossed that line. Okay? Now, the problem with the conscience is that sometimes in your conscience, you can move the line further and further away from where you are. So it can be changed. Matter of fact, when you you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that line is reset back to where God wants it to be. So the believer, their conscience can help you Keep track of you and your walk with sin. So, uh, that's the first way. Then there is nature, creation. Things that God has created in this world that we can look at that will give us an aspect of God. That we can get an understanding from nature about the Creator. And, And we can do this in a number of different ways. Uh, study of biology, study of uh, natural science, 
We can do a number of different ways of doing it, but just sometimes seeing creation. And in my block, we have beautiful sunsets on my block. Don't know if you see them, but on my block, they're very beautiful. And every time you see one, there should be a reaction to the person, wow, the creator of this universe is outstanding. So, there is that. But then, because of our conscience, that line can be moved, and because of nature, sometimes you can look at the sunset and not even think about God. There has to be a third way that God communicates His moral laws. And He's done that through what we call special revelation. In other words, the writings He gives us in His Word, which we call the Bible. The Bible. Now, the Bible is, communicates the Word of God, the heart of God, the character of God, to our hearts, using it in such a way that the Holy Spirit can minister to us what is God trying to communicate. So we can study the Word of God and learn about God's moral law. Now, verse 13. Notice the beginning of it. Therefore, did what which is good, what which is good. This refers back to last week, verse 12, talking about the law of God. The law of God is good. What else is good in this universe? God is good. God is good. So the law of God is a communication of the character of God to us so that we can understand what God is and who God is. Now, if the law is good, some people get confused that maybe Paul is talking about how a good law that is good, that reflects the character of God, how can it produce death? And that's going to be the answer given in verse 13. He's going to figure that out. Matter of fact, um, by the way, I'm, I'm teetering I'm teetering on that line of politics, okay? And if I get too close to you, forgive me. But every once in a while, you hear about a mass murderer shooting people. And what is the first thing the politicians think about when there's a mass murder of people dying because of a guy taking an an AR-15 and shooting people? They think gun laws, okay? Now, the problem with changing the gun laws is that the law is not to blame for those people's death. Or, let's say, the gun is not to blame for those people's death. It's very obvious. The law did not commit the death. What committed the death is sin that committed the death. And in this case, this example of gun violence, the gun didn't do it. The sinner that was holding the gun did it. So, changing the rules about the gun will not have anything to do with stopping death. It won't do it. The sinner is the one to blame for the sin. The moral law of God is given to show us, the sinner, how sinful we can be. Number two, 
Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me, may it never be, rather it was the sin, in order that it might be shown to be a sin by effecting my death through that which is good. Oh my goodness, I forgot the slide. See, I go one week without hitting the button, and I mess up. Here we go. The first thing that we saw is that the moral law of God is good. It is good. The moral law of God is good. Cannot be blamed for death. Cannot be blamed for sin. Because God calls it good. It's a tool used by sin to produce death. Here we go. You done? I'm sorry. I'll put it up faster. Here we go. Second. Now, note takers, don't throw pencils at me just yet. Okay? The second. Hey, no muttering. Second. What's the second point of theology that can be learned from special revelation about the moral law of God? Now, before you throw anything, here you go. Now, I did not get wordy. This is the meter, meter, the, the smallest point that I can make on this. Shortened it. I shortened it for you. There you go. Should be thankful. Here we go. The moral law of God leads to sin. The moral law of God leads to sin. But then sin leads to separation. Now, if you like shorthand, you can stop there. Okay? The moral law of God leads to sin, but then sin leads to separation. Sin leads to separation. What does he mean by separation? Separation from fellowship with God now. In this life, because of sin, you stop having fellowship with God. You cannot abide in God because of sin. Second, separation from your body in the future. In other words, your soul will leave your body one day. We call that death. Separation from your soul and body. You will die. The breath will go out of you. And then your spirit will be judged and go somewhere. Then, third, and then separation from God after the great white throne judgment. When you die, your soul will go to be with God in heaven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, your soul will go to a place called Hades where you will spend the next amount of time, how long, how long it is, I don't know, and how well you'll tell time, I don't know, but you'll be in that place until the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, You'll go before a throne where Jesus Christ will sit and the books will be opened and you will be judged. And if no place in those, in those books will be found a time where you placed your trust in Jesus Christ and lived obediently to the law, you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not find your name in there and you will be sent away to a place called the lake of fire. Now, there are a lot of things the Bible says about the lake of fire. It will be fire, but it will not burn you up. 
it will hurt, it will be painful, and you'll be separate from God, which will be more painful. So separation takes place because of sin. And it will show itself in three different ways in your future if you're not raptured out. So, death is a separation from fellowship with God now. And you will not enjoy peace and joy with God. And then in the future, when you die, your soul will be separated from your body. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll go into the presence of Christ. And you will start practicing your worship that you will be worshiping Him forever with. And then in the future, there will be a great white throne. And in the judgments there will be all guilty. And you'll all be transported into a place called the lake of fire. Now, the moral law of God does not cause death. Death is caused by sin. It results in the separation from a holy God and you will be condemned. And the condemnation you experience will be threefold. There will be a lack of joy here on this earth. There will be a death which will put you in a place called Hades. And then there will be eternal judgment at the great white throne. So, Death is spiritual separation, a spiritual death, a lack of joy. Physical separation, your soul from your body, and eternal separation from God. It is sin that causes you all these problems. The law did not make you an enemy of God. The moral law of God did not do that. Sin did. When your sin nature got in contact with the law of God, you committed more sin. It was sin and sin alone that condemns you to death. Sin worked death even though the law is good. Sin leads to death, not to the moral law of God. It always turns you the other way. Israel had the law of God. They thought the law of God would make them righteous. They didn't understand the purpose of the law was to point them to the Messiah and your need for a Savior. So, we got two things that are proven in this verse so far. First off, the law is good. Second off, that sin leads to death. Death is separation. Separation is not having fun with your friends. It's terrible. If you have a non-believing friend, you don't want him there. Matter of fact, if you have a non-believing enemy, you don't want him there. And the only way out of that place is through Jesus Christ. Here we go, number three. Number three. If you're done writing. Okay, everybody's done right. Here we go. Three. What are the third? What's the third point of theology we learn from special revelation about the moral law of God? Third, the moral law of God leads to sin being more sinful. Now, if that doesn't make sense, let me explain. The moral law of God leads to sin being more sinful. 
through the commandment, you have more sin. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Um, uh, if we had time, we'd go around the room, ask how your translation translated the word that's utterly there. Matter of fact, probably sinful too. But anyway, however your English version does it, it does not carry the same impact the Greek does. Here you go. Through the commandment, and the commandment in chapter 7, when it talks about commandment, it's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. Because of the Mosaic Law, you have more knowledge of sin because you know the righteous thing God wants you to do. <clears throat> there is no strength in the moral law of God to save even one person. You cannot be saved through the moral law of God. All you end up doing, trying to live by the golden rule, is you end up being more sinful. Sorry, good try. But there's a better way through Jesus Christ. Sin nature uses the commandments to produce more sinfulness so that you would become utterly sinful. That Greek word translated utterly could be translated to throw beyond. To throw beyond. To throw beyond. Uh, had the Fleming kids at my house last weekend, and I, was, I have this thing, I don't know what it's called. It's the basket on the end of the handle, and you throw the ball, and it sloops up, and it flies far, it's fun. You do it this way, it curves. You do it that way, it curves the other way. You know, and if you do it like me, it goes right into the ground. But anyway, so it was fun. With that thing, to make sure the kid's close to me, and then to throw it way over their head. That's what this Greek word is. It throws it way over your head. And no matter how fast you run, you cannot get there. It's utterly out of your range to run. It is beyond where you can run. You cannot catch it. It's utterly sinful. Utterly impossible for you to attain. It goes beyond you. Sin becomes the most impossible extent of sinfulness, the ultimate degree of sinfulness, and shown to be completely deadly because it's sinful. Only when sin becomes evil does the average person start to realize their problem with the power of sin. They can't believe they did something so bad to ruin their lives. If, if this was Hebrew, by the way, it'd be a lot easier. Hebrew just multiplies things. So it goes, it's not bad, worst, worst. It's, it's bad, 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 bad. That's what it needs. It needs Hebrew in this verse. So let's translate it in Hebrew. It would be, with the Hebrew, that sin is very, very, very sinful. I like that. So if we translate it into Hebrew, we just use words over and over again. But Greek, it says utterly. Beyond your ability to even perceive, it becomes more sinful. And I think that's right, by the way, because God is holy, right? And he views your sin as utterly, utterly, utterly sinful. There is no small sins when you sin against the holy God. 
It's huge. Utterly sinful. Sinful there is an adjective, and it's the first time in the book of Romans we have sin as an adjective. Always it's been a noun, but this is the first time that he uses the word sin to describe sin. So he's describing sin by using the word sin. Sin, sin. Super sin. More sin. Or utterly sinful. Sinfulness of sin is seen by all in its relationship to the moral law of God. The moral law of God is here, and you can go utterly sinful down here. Or if you want to go this way, the moral law of God, and completely opposite way, utterly sinful. It is nowhere near... Well, let's put it this way. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgressions would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the good news. No matter how sinful you are, there is grace that abounds all the more. So, the only solution to your sinfulness, your transgression, your rebellion against God is grace. If you've never experienced grace, don't leave this room before you understand what grace is. Grace, grace, grace. Turn to Psalm 19. Turn to Psalm 19. Since we got into the Hebrew there, let's go to the Hebrew Old Testament, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is one of the hardest books to preach on because it's Hebrew all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 150. It's always Hebrew, and it's hard to preach. By the way, I like Hebrew. You know why I like Hebrew? Because I'm betting that we will speak Hebrew in heaven. But anyway, let's go to Hebrew. Psalms 19, verse 1. Uh, first part of the verse, for the choir director. The choir director is the person in charge of singing. <clears throat> so if you want to sing and not sin, you go to this choir. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Therefore, it was written by who? King David. Yes, very good. King David wrote this down. He wrote a lot of the psalms. Not all of them, but wrote a lot of them. Verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. What is going on here? What is going on here is that he's talking about the moral law of God. The moral law of God. What's the believer's response to the moral law of God? Now, I'm talking about a believer. So I'm talking about one of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you uh, go on a backpacking trip, when you go outside, when you see a beautiful sunset, when you see a, a, a great winter day like you had today, whatever you have, that is a response you're supposed to have to God's natural revelation. So, here we go. Number one, verse one, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, if 
natural revelation is declaring the work of God, what should a believer's response be to God's work? Anybody brave enough? Okay, here we go. What we do as believers is we praise God. The believer must love to praise the Creator. We praise Him. By the way, what we'll do in heaven? We will praise Him. Because we'll know Him even better. Here, we get general revelation from the nature we see, and we respond by praising Him. We praise Him. We praise Him. We praise Him. We continually praise Him. We praise Him for being a creator. Praise is due to Him because He's the creator of this universe we live in. From God's point of view, the infinite power to create everything is just the work of His fingers. It's just the work of God's little finger. You go to the the gas station or the restaurant and they make you sign by using your finger. Have you ever done that? I write something on the pad and I look at it and I said, I don't even recognize what that is. Okay? And I use my good finger. I still can't understand what I wrote. That's what God did by creating this world. Which, by the way, scientists haven't figured out yet. You don't even know everything that God has created. And God did it just so that you would praise Him. Because it was the work of His little finger. It doesn't even look good to Him, probably. His standards are much greater. But He created it with His little finger... And he did it so that you would praise God. Verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Praise is to be continual in the daytime and in nighttime. You don't understand how big it was the first night I moved to Kansas. I looked outside and there were things in the sky. From Los Angeles, I never saw them before. Okay? We call them stars. You got to see them. They're pretty neat. I never saw any. Every once in a while I see a spotlight because some theater is opening somewhere. But other than that, I never saw anything like that. But you have stars that declare the glory of God that are caused and created so that you would praise Him. Praise Him. Verse 3. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Praise comes with nonverbal commands. In other words, there's no book on how to praise God looking at creation. So therefore, you're open to praise Him however you want. If you look up and you see a sunset and it looks red to you, you say, boy, what a beautiful red sky, God. Whatever your view is, you get to praise Him. And boast about them. Natural revelation uses no words, but gives a very powerful testimony of who God is. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth, the utterance to the end of the world. 